Welcome to the Preserving Family Podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to equip you to gain insight, information, and inspiration to help you protect, teach, and guide your family during these turbulent times. Our goal is to provide tools and resources to help you strengthen and preserve your own marriages and families. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Mark and Janie Ogletree. Hey everyone, we are so grateful that you've joined us here on our Preserving Families podcast today. We're always excited about the new topics each week and today is no different. <laughs> True. <laughs> Today's kind of a, um, or this week I guess is a big, a big deal for us. Our last child, our seventh daughter, is getting married. This is our last baby, our last child <laughs> to get married. And we are so excited for her and her fiance, but we are so excited to also be done, <laughs> to have all of our kids. We're excited to be empty nesters. Yeah, already. and married. Although we don't claim that we know what that really is, and maybe we never will, but we're okay with that, right? <laughs> we, we like them when they come back. Yeah, we like when our kids are in and out, but um, we're super excited. So that's mar- marriage and weddings, all that has been on our mind lately. So today we thought we were going to talk about some good marriage pointers and tips. And so for Natalie and Jake... If you're on your honeymoon and want to listen to this. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they want to be listening. Yeah. I'm sure they want to listen to their parents on their honeymoon. But anyway, but we thought this was great advice for anybody brand new, brand new married or been married several years. I think we think this is really some great counsel and advice. So yeah, let's I mean, go for it. Yeah. I mean, we're going to, we're going to hit you with, with some research today. We'll start, uh, by quoting from Cicero. We don't quote Cicero much, a Roman statesman, but he said that the first bond of society is marriage. And I love that. I love that we are going to build our society here on a foundation of marriage, which is going to then lead to family and then community, and it reaches out from there. But we belong to a church that believes that marriage is ordained of God. In fact, President Hinckley said once years ago that God sanctioned marriage between a man and a woman, and that has been the the basis of civilization for thousands of years. So marriage is the very first bond of society, no question about it. Now, let me just say a couple things uh, about about the good news about marriage, because the media will portray marriage in such a bad light, and so many of the things that we hear just aren't true. For example, Janie, you've heard your whole life, this this is your quiz, you ready? You've heard your whole life that the divorce rate is always what? What do we always hear? 50%? Yeah. We've heard that our whole... We've heard that since we were teenagers, right? That yeah. half of all people who get married end in divorce. And it's not true. In fact, it's not even close to true. Uh, and I'll give you some U.S. Census data. So this is not data from any kind of institution or think tank. This is just government data. But 72% of those who have ever been married are still married to their first spouse. Wow. You can't have a divorce rate of 50% if 72% are still married, are still married <laughs> to each other, you know? And so, you know, what does that mean? At the, at the highest, the divorce rate would be 28%, but that, now you have to factor in widows and other things. And so <clears throat> here's, here's another uh, survey. 80% of marriages report being happy. 30% report being very happy. And 93% in one study said that if they had to do all had to do it all over again, they would marry their spouse. Mm. I would. I, I would too. <laughs> um, 
So, so let me just share a couple things about, about the 50% divorce rate. Number one, the researchers who made that divorce rate so profound and significant and the media just jumped on it and pounced. They have said today that was a projection. We were, in other words, the way I would say it is we were just kind of guessing, right? We were, we were guessing. The other thing is when you factor in a divorce rate, they're fa- they are factoring in first marriages, second marriages, and third marriages. That's not cool, right? Because the divorce rate's higher for second marriages and higher for third marriages. But they put them all in one basket, you know. So that's a problem. And then they don't factor in things like this. If you're religious and if you uh, attend church meetings together and try to live your religion together, the divorce rate drops drastically. If you're college educated, the divorce rate drops drastically. And so for good people, good church-going Christian people and, and uh, who are, li- are trying to live the principles that they believe in, they attend church together, they talk about uh, the teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're active in their faith. The divorce rate's low. It's low. The probability of getting divorced is low. But if you believe in the narrative that 50% of people are going to get divorced at some point, then it makes it really easy to be in a relationship and say, you know what, this isn't going real well, and half the people don't make it anyway, so I guess this isn't going to work. And And they just bail, right? They pull the plug, right? And so... The good news about marriage is A, most people are married, and B, uh, people that are married are usually pretty happy, you know? And so we're going to refer you to one of our favorite books lately. It's called Get Married by Brad Wilcox. This is not the Brad Wilcox at BYU and in the Young young Men's General Presidency. This is Bradford Wilcox, a wonderful man who is a great, great researcher. The book is called Get Married. It just came out this month. This book is big time, sharing all the advantages and why marriage is so crucial to our society. So let me tell you a little bit about John Gottman. I became aware of him when I was in my doctoral program. He was big time in those days. He still is pretty big time. He's probably one of the leading scholars in the field of marriage. And what makes John Gottman unique is his approach is more scientific. His background is in math. We don't have a lot of uh, family researchers who are mathematicians, but Dr. Gottman practiced and also as a psychologist, but also as a, as a professor and researcher at the University of Washington in Seattle. They created what they called the Love Lab, which were, was a place where couples would come and stay for the weekend. And over that weekend, they would engage in conversation. They'd show natural affection. They would be given task and problem-solving activities to engage in. Everything was pretty normal, except for the fact that they were hidden, not hidden, the the couples knew that there were cameras in every room recording every move these couples made. And at the end of a weekend, you would literally have hours and hours of footage for research assistants to go through and code and categorize the behaviors of these couples. Now, why that becomes uh, interesting to us is because after 20 years of doing that repetitively, over and over again, Dr. Gottman and his team were able to predict with 90% accuracy the couples who would divorce and the couples who would stay married. And one of their key findings in that research is that if there were four key elements, and these these key principles or elements 
Dr. Gottman affectionately named the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, kind of <laughs> a play on uh, the book of Revelation, right? But the idea was, boy, doom and gloom are coming you know, in your marriage if you have any of these four things. And the first one was criticism. And the second one was contempt. We're going we're gonna to spend more time on each one of these. The third was defensiveness. And the fourth was what he called stonewalling. Others have called it just withdraw. But if those four ideas, if those four principles are kind of in play in a relationship, there's like a 90% chance that that relationship's going to deteriorate in divorce. And so we want to talk to you now just for a minute about each one of these four horsemen. All right, so let's talk about this first horseman, criticism. And it's probably not unusual for there to be some criticism in a relationship, but let me kind of tell you where Gottman goes with this. He says, criticism is different different than just complaining because it really involves attacking someone's personality or character rather than stating a specific behavior or problem to be addressed. It also includes blame. So criticism, personal attacks, complaints, negativity, nagging, constantly berating our partner, harping. You know, Janie, what else? Yeah, just relentless I feel like <laughs> like can't say anything nice <laughs> and we've been around those people before right where yeah, they just really we had some friends their spouse yeah right? we had some friends years ago that we would hang out with quite often and she the wife could not say anything nice about her husband yeah I mean just one thing if you even said oh uh, you know she'd criticize it she'd make fun of him she would just belittle him to the point it was so awkward to be around them that we just had to stop being around them <laughs> because you just felt bad for this guy. You know what I mean? Right. And, and That's not a fun home to come to, no, home to by the way, when you're no. uh, for, for a husband or a wife, right? To know that when you get home, you're just going to get laid into. Yeah, we've and, lost track of them, but I don't know how their marriage ended up. <laughs> we're going like, to hope they're still married. Uh, right? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so that would, be, that would be kind of the idea of criticism. Now, here's contempt. And the way that John Gottman define, defines contempt is he says it's even more damaging than criticism. But in my mind, contempt crosses the line and now it's gone nasty. It's criticism that's gone nasty. It's criticism that's become personal. Now you're name calling. Uh, and, and frankly, if you want to ask me, not that you have to ask me, but I just feel like it's, it's abuse. It's literally verbal abuse. It's mm. emotional abuse. Uh, examples he gives, insults, name-calling, hostile humor, mockery, sneering body language, eye-rolling, <laughs> you know. And so once again, it's just, when you when you grow up in a culture, let's say, where there's a lot of name-calling, I think that does permanent damage. I mean, I think people grow up, become adults, and look back on that years later and can, and can safely say... I think that kind of messed me up, you know, being told I was stupid or dumb or lazy, you know, or all the labels that we give people. And it's no different in a marriage. I mean, to be called those kind of things and labeled those kind of things, it is abusive. But think of how destructive it is when the person that you're madly in love with, you know. Supposedly. <laughs> yeah. The person that you want to be with every day, the person that you care more about what this person thinks than anyone else on the earth. And they are verbally destroying you every day. You know, how difficult would that be? And that's kind of a, a narcissistic for the abuser. You right. know, it's kind of a narcissistic trait to treat someone so subservient and hostile like that. Yeah, totally.
Totally. So the third horseman that Gottman talks about is defensiveness. And maybe that's more common. I know that I can be defensive. I don't have any trouble admitting that sometimes. Um, but often when we're bombarded by insults or are we or criticize, a natural reaction to that is to fight back, right? Is to defend yourself. Um, but defensiveness can also be in other realms as well, right? Right now, we're almost presenting these horsemen as a stair step, right? You start with criticism, and then it turns into contempt, and then there's defensiveness because you're defending yourself from the spouse who's being so abusive, right? But also just as a general rule, you know, I've learned about myself when we don't feel, um, how about this, when we don't feel adequate, when our our self-worth may be low sometimes, and we're really hoping that our partner will see that, that, we'll, that they'll see in us the good, right? And then when we fail them, when we make a mistake, when we do something and that partner gets on us, right? Our spouse comes at us a little bit. It's kind of natural to be defensive because you want, I know Janie, in my case, I want you to think I'm awesome. I want you to think I'm a great guy. And when you say, hey, you know what? Uh, why did you leave the, you know, whatever, whatever I did that day? <laughs> I'm like, shoot, I was hoping she would think I'm cool. And if and if I did that, that's not cool. And so now we get defensive, right? To Which I think is a total human reaction, right? Yeah. If somebody criticizes us, you know, I mean, again, that's one of the Christ-like characteristics is trying to be meek and humble and, and teachable. But I think the natural man in all of us is to immediately defend ourselves and fight back and, and you know, and explain. And, right. and so I think that's very common in marriage. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Every relationship, but especially yeah. in marriage. I remember, you know, Janie, another thing that Gottman says is that the major problem with defensiveness is, is that it, it, it obstructs communication. He said, rather than understanding each other's perspective, you spend your discussions defending yourself. And then nothing ever gets resolved, he said. So it's one of the great roadblocks to problem solving and I guess I'm landing on defensiveness more than the the others because I I recognize it in myself so much. But I remember, Janie, we had a situation in our life once where out of the blue, it was April, and we got a call from BYU offering a job that we didn't even apply for, uh, which was a great honor. I mean, we were super excited about that. But it was was timing. The timing wasn't perfect. I was the bishop of our ward. I had a, a, a pretty, thr- I would say, a thriving counseling practice in McKinney, Texas at the time. And there was all the, and they wanted us there by June. And here it was April. I don't know about you, but I still remember you calling me on the phone at work that day going, hey, this was back when people had answering machines. And <laughs> uh, there's a call from BYU, and I think you need to call them back. But I remember one day pulling up in the driveway, and you were really frustrated because I was working, you know, 50 or so hours a week or more, and was the bishop. And we were not getting anywhere with all the home repairs and all the things you need to do to fix a house up to sell, especially a home that we had lived in for 10 years and had eight children. And But you, I think you were quite frustrated. I, I pulled up in the driveway, and you're out there sweeping, sweeping the sidewalk. Like, what's going on, honey? And you said, we are never, ever going to sell this house. And... I took that as code for because you don't do anything, you know, you're not doing anything to, which I'm sure you didn't mean that, but, but it just, that was my interpretation, you know? And so, because you're never home, I think is what you were saying. And I just remember you said, we're never going to get this done. I just said, what do you want me to do? Go, 
go quit being the bishop right now and just go quit my job so I can putty holes or paint rooms or whatever. And, and you were not happy. We don't mind telling people that we have moments of not happiness in our marriage every now and then. <laughs> Which is normal. Most marriages do, right? That's... <laughs> I don't think you threw the broom or anything, but you kind of walked inside and I just sat out on the sidewalk and I thought, I'm the biggest idiot. That's not what she needed to hear right now. And so I, I thought about it and I recognized that you needed something else from me at that point. And so... And what you needed was a solution. I think that's what you were looking for. So. Yeah, just some reassurance that, no, it's going to be okay. We're going right. to get this done. <laughs> In fact, I'll never forget Kelly Ogden, one of my favorite people, great BYU religion professor. We see him in the temple a lot, wonderful man. But he wrote a chapter about Lehi and, and Sariah. And one of the things he said is that Sariah was complaining, right, in, in chapter 5. And, and he said, Kelly Ogden said, people who complain need comfort. And that thought came into my head from uh, from something that Kelly Ogden had wrote. And I went in and and I said, you know what? I'm so sorry. That was dumb. I was just frustrated too. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to get this hat. We're going to make this happen. Here's our schedule. Here's our plan. Let's go. And you were totally fine. But once again, my first knee-jerk rea- reaction was to be defensive, which once again, as you can see, didn't get us anywhere. No, I really agree with that. Because anytime that like we argue... We were both trying to prove our own point and our own, you know, instead of taking a break and thinking, because of this pure defensiveness, and instead of trying to listen to the other person and understand where they're coming from, if we're so busy trying to figure out, now what am I going to say next, or here's my, here's where I'm coming from, then of course, it's just going to get worse and worse. <laughs> I was in a counseling session not long ago, and the, and, the, and the husband in the session kept saying, okay, but on all these issues, I'm right. I'm right on everything that we've talked about. And I remember telling him, look, if that's going to be your position, we're not going to get anywhere. Because if you're going to assume that you're right on everything, because in fact, on everything in a marriage, there's two sides to every story. And there's, there's, we have to be able to be empathetic, right? And we'll talk about that in a minute. But anyway, good, good stuff. Now, the last one, the last horseman, he, uh, Dr. Gottman calls it stonewalling. A lot have called it just withdrawal. But really what this means is the relationship is kind of over. You know, you're waving the white flag here because what you've done is you've stopped listening. You've stopped responding. You've, you're not engaging in any way. In fact, you're silent. You're withdrawn. And the way that I think about it a lot is you're now just ignoring someone. You're just living in the same home. But really, there's no connection. The connection has been severed in half. Two people existing under the same roof. And what he calls stony silence. In fact, he says when stonewalling occurs, the relationship is nearing rock bottom. I remember counseling a couple years ago where the wife was very abusive, verbally, you know, just very verbally abusive. And after about 20 years or so, the husband basically just said, I'm done. I'm just done. And, and because, you know, part of our LDS theology is, okay, we don't want to get divorced. We want to try to hang in there. But his thought is, okay, I'm going to hang in there, but I'm done with this marriage, you know. So I will just, I'm going to be in the same house, but I'm not going to, he wouldn't even respond to her when she she would talk and ask him questions. He literally just almost turned into a mute, you know, when it came to. just shut down. Hmm. Yeah, just totally withdrew and shut down. I've seen it in other situations where a spouse may uh, commit adultery or something serious like that. And, and the other spouse says, okay, we're going to stay together, but you're almost dead to me, you know? And, and so 
once again, they're in the same home, but completely disconnected from each other. And you have to wonder what the value of that is. So I, I got a quote from one of my favorite shows. It's Seinfeld. And uh, <laughs> there's an episode, and you can look it up, but where George decides that he's going to do the opposite of everything he's ever done. And Jerry even says, look, if every natural instinct you have is wrong, then doing the opposite would be right. You know, just like you, Janie, tell me, who I'm directionally challenged, that if you think go left, then go right. Yeah, if your instincts to go that way, nope, go that way. Go You'll be way. right 100% of the time. You'll nail it, right? Yeah, it's totally true. And so in our mind, you know, when we take these four horsemen that Gottman talks about and just consider the opposite for each one of those, th those are the ingredients for a strong, healthy marriage. So the solution number one, which is the opposite of criticism, is encouragement, praise, validation. Mm, totally. So that's what we should be doing in our marriage. <laughs> yeah. And I love what Elder Uchtdorf said. He said, because no matter how flat your relationship may be at the present, if you keep adding pebbles of kindness, compassion, listening, sacrifice, understanding, and selflessness, eventually a mighty pyramid will begin to grow. So I love I the love idea that. that it's built on these little tiny acts of love. Right? Yeah, and I love that it's it gives you hope that even if right now it's feeling flat and you know and you kind of you feel like your marriage is stagnant, if you just start adding these little things, that it it'll grow and become better and improve. Yeah, and I think marriage, you know, should be the safest place that we could ever be. Right? It is the refuge. It is a place where we can leave the world behind and come to our home with a spouse who honors us, treasures us, loves us unconditionally, and gives us the praise and the compliments and the kind words. And then you can go back out and slay the dragon, so to speak, right? But to to have someone who loves us in that way is, it, it, it's safe, it's healthy, it's, it's where happiness can be found. I mean, that's really how you build a relationship, is you get, build a relationship with someone, with anyone, by saying kind things to them, like by giving them compliments and praise. Yeah. Another great scholar is Judith S. Wallerstein. And she said, the task of marriage is to give comfort and encouragement in a relationship that is safe for dependency, failure, disappointment, mourning, illness, and aging. In short, for being a vulnerable human being. Mm. You know, she also says that uh, the main task of every marriage is to nurture each other. Mm. You know, once again, how do you nurture, you know, and, and one of the ways we do that is by giving compliments and praise and sharing kind words. And so, yes, if we want to fight that first horseman, we need to engage in encouragement and praise and kindness and love and make our home a safe refuge, not just for our spouses, but even for our children. Okay, solution number two, the opposite of contempt mm. is we've kind of identified as respect kindness, charity, yeah, all those kind of things. And so if we're looking, if we're trying to do those in our marriage, if we're looking for imperfections in our spouse or irritations in our marriage, we'll certainly find them. You know, it's just easy to do, don't you think, in life? Yeah. <laughs> it's. I think it's easy to find the negative things. But on Too the other easy, hand, probably. if we look for the good, we will surely find it because everyone has good qualities. We wouldn't have married them if they didn't, right? Our spouses especially. 
have good qualities and we need to look for those and pay attention to those kind of things right. and not just dwell on the constant nagging negative things that just annoy us on a daily basis. And that was kind of a, a paraphrase of something President Udorf said. And then he added to that, that those who save marriages pull out the weeds and water the flowers, right? Oh, that's I think, cute. I think we got to find a way to maybe ignore the weeds or pull them out or get rid of them or whatever, but, but to focus on the flowers, right? Mm. But my favorite, Janie, is this, and it has been a great guide for me, and I, I wish I could live up to it. But he said that we should think the best of each other, especially of those that you say you love. Assume the good and doubt the bad. And I think that that is one, if, if I could identify five key principles for a happy marriage, I think that'd be one of them for sure. Because I know in my own life, there have been times where I've, I have assumed the worst of you or the worst of a child, and that wasn't their intent at all. Like I remember one time you came home late because you went shopping with someone and you guys and you were in her car. <laughs> so you, you were stuck, but I was on call at a hospital and I couldn't get, I couldn't, this is before cell phones, but I couldn't, I couldn't go because I was home watching the kids. And, and I remember just thinking, wow, how could she do this to me? And then when you got home, you're like, sorry, I was trying to leave and, but I was with her and I couldn't get away. And, but I had assumed the worst. Why do we do that? Why do we assume the worst of the people that we love the most. And so just that rule alone to think the best of each other, I think could keep us out of so much trouble. Can you imagine how it would be with our teenage children if we thought the best of them instead of the worst? Yeah. And when, as I, <clears throat> as I think of the word charity, you know, we talk about that's the pure love of Christ mm-hmm. and that we, that's a gift, right? A gift of the spirit that we need to ask for. And if we're having trouble in our marriage, being kind or respectful or charitable, we need to pray for that. We need to actively pray for that to gift. see the yeah. gift, to, to yeah have that gift and to see the good in our spouse or our children or whatever relationship we're struggling with. But I think that's a gift that can come that Heavenly Father, I think, desires to bless us with, but we don't ask for it. And we have to really bite our tongues a lot and and really look for the good, I think, sometimes. <laughs> but Yeah, maybe some days it's not easy, right? But yeah. when I think of this, and I, I know I'm, I'm kind of going off here for a minute, but I'm just thinking of some different marriage and family, you know, experts. One of them was a favorite of mine, uh, Gary Smalley, who said that in marriage we should honor each other. He used the word honor. I think of John Gray, who in his, you know, book Venus and Mars, talked about that women need to be cherished and men need to be needed. And in my mind, that's a way that you can honor uh, each other. In other words, Janie, if I can find ways to cherish you, I want you to feel cherished. You know, and you probably have to tell me what that means, because for every wife that could be really different. And and men, I'm going to guess that most of us don't really know what that always means. But then men, we want to be needed. We want to be useful. We want to help solve problems. We want to not be handcuffed in our homes, but to be a great resource, right? And to be a great help. And so if we're honoring our spouses by cherishing, by letting them feel needed by admiring then now we're now we're on really really solid ground and to finish this principle off <laughs> yeah I'm just going to quote president spencer w kimball who was a huge fan of marriage and family and talked about right it often but he says in marriage there must be great unselfishness forgetting self and directing all of the family life and all pertaining thereunto to the good of the family subjugating self which means putting ourselves last, right? Yeah. Putting ever putting our spouse and family first. 
Total unselfishness is sure to accomplish another factor in successful marriage. If one is forever seeking the interests, comforts, and happiness of the other, the love found in courtship and cemented in marriage will grow into mighty proportions. Kind of like this idea that the opposite of contempt is to be kind and unselfish, right? And giving to And even serving, serving and just putting yourself last. I love that. All right, solution number three. So we talked about defensiveness was the third horseman. So our solution to that is really pretty simple. We're just proposing humility and accountability. You know, we often talk about the great story in the New Testament. Christ tells his apostles that one of you shall betray me. And in almost in unison, they say, Lord, is it I? And I just always think that Lord, is it I? That is, that's another top five principle in my mind for a happy and successful marriage is to be able to say, Lord, is it I? I mean, even when we're in a, some kind of disagreement or some kind of having some kind of issue in the relationship, if we're asking, okay, what is it that I'm doing wrong here? What I may be missing something. Lord, help me know. He'll always tell us, right? He, he doesn't mind telling us those things. And so I love the idea of being quick to apologize. Uh, President Oaks shared a great story years ago where he said, this is when he was married to June, long before she passed away. But he said, a disagreement with June just wipes me out. And he said, and since I'm always wrong anyway, I just apologize as quick as I can. And he said, we can't say in our family that we've never had any disagreements. In fact, he uses this word. He said, we've had some marvelous disagreements, but we've always worked them out. And uh, once again, to be humble enough to be the first, you know, to be swift to apologize. That's another uh, phrase I've heard from Elder Joe J. Christensen. And, uh, and, I, and I know that there are people out there, and for those of you who are listening today, if you're one of those that just has a really hard time apologizing, boy, that's, that's going to be a tough marriage, right, for your, for your partner. And so learn to apologize and to mean it, to be sincere with it, to own it. I always tell people we have to own apologies because often what happens is you hear apologies like this. Hey, I'm really sorry that you got mad about that. Uh, I'm sorry that that bothered you so much. That's not an, that doesn't even count. Okay. An apology is I'm so sorry that I did that to you. I'm so sorry that I caused you to feel that way. Yeah. I I think that's so true. This elder Uchtdorf says kind of the same thing when he says, sincerely apologizing to your children, your wife, your family, or your friends is not a sign of weakness, but it's actually of strength. Yeah. It's wow. being right more is being right more important than fostering an environment of nurturing, healing, and love. Build bridges, he said. Don't destroy them. Even when you are not at fault, perhaps especially when you're not at fault, let love conquer pride. Mm. You know, when I think of humility in a marriage context. You know, I just think, I mean, because in a general context, you think of, okay, recognizing our dependence on God for everything that we have. But in a marriage context, I think once again, it's, it's the recognition that we don't have all the answers, that we don't know everything, that we can learn from our partner. That maybe we do see things in a different way, but yeah, and that's okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. So solution number four, the opposite of withdrawal is connection, engagement, and intimacy. Yeah. And I to kick this off, I love <laughs> F. Burton Howard's quote. It says, if you want something to last forever, you treat it differently. You shield it and protect it. You never abuse it. 
You didn't expose it to the, you don't expose it to the elements. You don't make it common or ordinary. If it ever becomes tarnished, you lovingly polish it until it gleams like new. It becomes special because you have made it so. And then it grows more beautiful and precious as time goes by. Mm, such a great, that was a great story where Elder Howard in General Conference talked about his wife's silverware and how she took care of it and how it lasted for so long because she took care of it. And then he made this great metaphor to how that applies to marriage, right? Mm -hmm. And then President Nelson, our prophet, um, is that we can keep uh, our marriages strong by keeping alive the spirit of romance in our marriage. To be considered and kind in the tender intimacies of your married life. Let your thoughts and actions inspire confidence and trust. Let your words be wholesome and your time together be uplifting. And then this, let nothing in life take priority over your spouse, neither work nor recreation nor hobby. This is where President Nelson went on to say that if marriage is a prime relationship in life, it deserves prime time. And so really what we're talking about is spending time together, right? We've heard President Ufdorf say that love is spelled T-I-M-E, right? Now that's probably even more so for people who we would say are, are kind of time-oriented lovers, like the way that they express love and want to receive it is by spending time together. But that's that's solid stuff. In fact, it was uh, President Hinckley who said that a good marriage requires time. It requires effort. You have to work at it. You have to cultivate it. You have to forgive and forget, and you have to be absolutely loyal to one another. But back to the idea that a marriage requires time and effort and work, and you have to cultivate it. I think a lot of people think they have the mistaken idea that if you just put two good people together in a marriage, then everything should work out and be great. Not recognizing that you have to work at it, right? You have to put energy in. I mean, anything worthwhile takes our energy and time, right? If we want to build a nice home, if we want to uh, write a nice book, right? If we want to have a nice yard, whatever it is, if we want to have great kids, you've got to put time and work and energy into it and invest that and I think it was Dean L. Larson that said that many couples have an illusion today that that if you, if just the two if two people get married that love each other that they're just going to have this great marriage. He's like, no, it's not going to happen that way. You have to put energy and effort into it. And so, yeah. Now, here's the good news: is that the energy and effort that you put towards a marriage is actually fun, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> It's, <laughs> it's like, honey, hey, we need to go on a little trip together, or we should go eat at this cool place, or we should go do this. It is not life on the rock pile, friends. We're not, uh, it's, <laughs> this is, this is fun work, right? When you get to work on your marriage. Absolutely. And like Mark was talking about a, a minute ago out of this new book by Brad, Bradley Wilcox, Bradford Wilcox, right. Get Married. I love this because he talks about, and this is not going to blow anyone's socks off, but I love that <laughs> this is a big study that just came out. That husbands and wives who have a date night at least once a month are the happiest. They have like an 81% um, rate satisfaction, satisfaction rate yeah. of being happy. So can you imagine if you were doing that every weekend or at least once a <laughs> week, you were having a weekly date with your spouse, how happy your marriage would be? <laughs> and once again, and that doesn't take much. That's pretty simple, right? To go on a date once a month. Yeah. And he says, in fact, regular date nights are one of the strongest pro projectors of marital happiness in the survey. 
Moreover, a National Marriage Project report showing that the probability of divorce for couples who set aside time, just like couple time, mm. at least once a week was 25% less over a five-year period than those who didn't have couple time. Wow. And I think that the whole premise behind that is it's just you're prioritizing your marriage. You know, you're making it a priority. You're you're setting aside you time. You're realizing that we matter and not just the whole family, that it's just the two of us that matter. Um, he says, husbands and wives who make an effective effort to keep the embers in their marriage burning by doing date nights enjoy higher quality marriages. And we just send a signal to our spouse that they matter, you know, that I'm going to take the time for you. I'm going to, you know, we're going to go have fun. We're going to go do something, you know, and that if we're together on a date night, it's because our relationship is that important to us. Yeah. So I think that was such a, a great study and something so easy that all of us can do and all of us can approve on. And if we are doing it, you know, we somehow can make it better. <laughs> well, Janie, there's to go the other direction for a minute. There's also research that says exactly the opposite, meaning that if you don't spend the time together, you're more likely to divorce. Right. Uh, in fact, in this study, it's called the Survey of Marital Generosity. Wives who reported having couple time less than once a week were four times more likely to report what they called divorce proneness, which meant, hey, I'm actually thinking of getting out of this thing. Is there any way out of this marriage? Compared to wives who spent at least once a week with their husbands. Meanwhile, husbands who reported spending less than once a week in couple time with their wives were two and a half times more likely to be divorce prone compared to husbands who had time with their with their wives once a week. So in this, uh, another data set, kind of just supporting, Janie, what you just said, the National Survey of Families and Households, that the more time husbands and wives spend together, the less likely they are to divorce. And, and once again, it just, I know that that almost sounds silly saying it. It's just, it seems like that would it make seems It seems so obvious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I know when you're in busy life, especially young couples that have lots of children, and they're just busy trying to meet every child's need and take care of the family and keep things going. And oftentimes they both have careers or hobbies. It can become, you know, a hard to get babysitters, you know, set up to get to take that time away. I, I remember even when we were that age, it was it became it was kind of a financial sacrifice, right, to pay a babysitter and then go do something that costs money, too. You yeah, know, was, absolutely. But it was worth it. It right? was. You know, Janie, this reminds me of a verse in First Corinthians chapter 7, uh, where the Apostle Paul says that, Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. Now, this is interesting because basically benevolence is, you know, we don't use that word benevolence too much these days, but really what it means is to be kind, to be generous, to think of someone else before ourself. But, there's a great footnote in this verse, 1 Corinthians 7, 3. For the word benevolence, it says, continuing courtship in marriage. Or in other words, there's even a biblical mandate here for us to, to be together and to, and to date each other. One time, Elder Joe J. Christensen in general conference taught this principle. He said, make time to do things together, just the two of you. As important as it is to be with the children as a family, you need regular Weekly time alone together. Schedule it. Scheduling it, he said, will let your children know that you feel that your marriage is so important that you need to nurture it. Take that commit. That takes commitment, planning, and scheduling. And he said, it doesn't. It doesn't need to be costly. 
Yeah, and that's why uh, Doug Brindley used to always say babysitters are cheaper than divorces. <laughs> that's right. You know, J.D., I remember years ago we were in our doctoral program. Life was pretty stressful, pretty crazy. I think we had seven children at the time living on a, a pretty low budget, going through school and working full time. You, know, you were busy, I was busy. And about that time, Elder Holland spoke to all the seminary and institute personnel in the church. And uh, here's what he said. He said that, well, I'll just paraphrase a little bit here, but he said several years ago, he just related how difficult their life was for he and Sister Holland when they were graduate students at Yale. At that time, Elder Holland was in the state presidency. He was directing the institute program. He was a full-time student, was married. They had a couple of young children at the time. Sister Holland was the Relief Society president, wife, mother. She also watched other people's children, uh, did some babysitting to bring some extra money in. But this couple decided that no matter how busy their life was, how crazy it was, that every Friday night would be their date night together. And here's what Elder Holland said. He said, on that night, for a few hours, we would be together. We would step off the merry-go-round. We would take a deep breath or two and remind ourselves how much we loved each other, why we were doing all this in the first place, and that there surely must be a light at the end of the tunnel somewhere. He said, I do not remember those dates ever amounting to much. I literally cannot remember ever even going out to dinner, but we must have. We certainly must have had at least gotten a pizza occasionally. I just don't remember it. But what I do remember is walking in the Yale New Haven Arbitorium, which was just around the street from our student housing. I remember long walks there holding hands and dreaming of dreams of what life might be like when things were less demanding. And down at the end of the street was a Dairy Queen where we would occasionally end up for a cone or on a really good night, a root beer float. And then he further stated that both he and Patricia needed those nights to give them a sense of sanity and direction. It was a time to reconnect and to celebrate what mattered most in their marriage and in their lives. Those Friday night dates were something the Hollands both looked forward to. And the time they spent together was renewing and healing. And then, then Elder Holland said this, A drugstore psychologist once said that people need three things to be emotionally healthy. Someone to love, significant things to do, and something pleasant to look forward to. And then he said to all the men in the audience, Brethren, make sure your wife has something pleasant to look forward to, something genuinely fun to look forward to on a regular basis, he said. And once again, here we were in that almost same situation in some in some ways. And I remember that was just such a great revelation. Yeah, I remember you sharing that with me. And I think it meant a lot to us because it felt like, oh, someone's in the same boat or was in the same boat that we were at. Yeah. But I, I, and that's meant a lot over the years that we do try to take that time. And sometimes it's been the day, like sometimes nights just aren't happening. When we had kids playing sports on Friday nights and things, yeah. our date became, we'd go to lunch every Friday <clears throat> or things like that. You have to sometimes be creative. <laughs> we, had, we had a compromise. That's for sure. President Spencer W. Kimball said, I think the Lord smiles when he sees young husbands and wives and older ones with deep affection for each other who continue their courtship, as our prophet has said, who continue to love each other with all their souls until the day they die, and then accentuate it through eternity. Mm. I agree. I think the Lord smiles on that. I do. And you see how easy it is to become apathetic in marriage. You know, I remember as a teenager going places like a movie theater or a public place, and you'd see this old couple 
holding hands and you would think, oh man, when I'm married one day, my wife and I, we're, we're going to be like that, right? And then it's so easy to be distracted and pulled away from what matters most in our lives, which, which should be the gospel in each other, right, first. So we started with John Gottman today. Let's finish with him. He talked about something in one of his books called The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. And he called it the magic five hours. And he said that if every couple did these five things, it would make their marriages such much happier and fulfilling and satisfying. He said, number one, before leaving for the day, learn one thing that will happen in your spouse's life that day before you even leave each other. Number two, engage in a stress-reducing conversation at the close of every day, which means you can't talk about what? The, the kids, the bills, whatever else. All the problems. <laughs> Number three, do something daily to communicate genuine affection and appreciation to each other. Number four, demonstrate some kind of physical affection during the day. And then number five, have a weekly date together. And he said, although these activities have a minimum, require a minimum time investment, the dividends could make a significant difference. I love the idea that it's, Right from the Book of Mormon, right? That it's the small and simple things out of which proceedeth that which is great. And it is. It's the small, as President Udorf said, little pebbles that bring great strength to our, our marriages. So in conclusion, we always end with LDS, let's do something. Right. And so um, if something else has stuck out through you through what we've talked about today, that's great. But I guess our invitation would be to actually... Make a date night this week. <laughs> go and spend some time together. Go spend, right? And even if it's a half an hour, you know, take a walk, go on a bike ride, go on a drive, go, you know, like President or Elder Holland said, go share a root beer flow, whatever. <laughs> or an ice cream cone. Go play sure. tennis, whatever, whatever it is that you two do together, but go do something together. Go to the temple, go, you know, do something. And, put your phones away when you do it, right? Yeah, Leave your, your phones, phones in away. the car. But um, let's improve that. I think we can all improve on that. And, then, and if we are going out every week, let's let's improve the quality maybe or do something to better our time with our spouse yeah. and make that a priority. I think that's a great invitation. Okay, honey, so I'm going to wait for you to ask me out uh, this week and <laughs> okay. plan a, an incredible date, all right? Well, everyone, thank you for being with us. We, 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 we love what we do here. We love talking about these principles uh, we're here to help preserve and strengthen families however we can. We uh, thank you so much for being with us this time, and we look forward to being with you again. Have a wonderful, awesome week.